You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. Language is one of the most important parts of any culture. It's how we communicate, build relationships, and maintain community connections. Yet, language is continually denied to migrant and First Nations communities. We made an episode about the importance of language last November called Vanishing Voices. We want to keep that conversation going, so today we're playing two stories from the National Features and Documentary series. In November, we heard from an Arunda man, Declan Ferber-Gillick, who was translating his story as a way of learning Central Arunda. Today, we're playing a story from producer MJ Bakewell about translation services being denied to Arunda people in the legal system. A warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, this piece contains the names and voices of people who have passed on. Another heads up, there's also a mention of suicide. Back in 2015, I'd just arrived in Alice Springs and I was standing in front of the courthouse. I was with my supervisor, a lawyer with Aboriginal Legal Aid, and he turned to me and he said, this is the frontier, the frontier of justice. And I thought, was he joking? I mean, what did I know? I was 25, it was my first law internship, and I had never been to court before. I followed the duty lawyers around like a shadow. They ran around on their phone, their arms full of manila folders. There were clients there too, all Aboriginal people, and mostly they were just sitting and waiting. I watched the lawyers ask complex questions in English. I watched the clients nod back in agreement. Sometimes I thought that maybe they needed an interpreter, because for some, English might be their second, third or even fourth language. But they said that they didn't, and the lawyers pushed on. Maybe by frontier of justice, my supervisor had meant, we're still working this out. Because there was something about the difference in language skills between the lawyers and clients that was kind of uncomfortable. Later, I asked some lawyers how much they thought the clients understood, and their answers never really satisfied me. They just said, this is how it is. Yeah, that's the sort of reaction I get too. This is David Moore. He's a linguist and an interpreter. He's a white fella. I tried to reach out to the Aboriginal Interpreter Service, but they government-run and nobody got back to me, except for one person who sent me on to David. It's now 2020 and neither of us are satisfied by how it is. What I've seen is people pleading guilty when they don't need to plead guilty and assuming almost fatalistically that they're going to jail. David told me about one time he was booked for an interpreting job, but the person hearing the case didn't think that interpreter was needed. I was interpreting on a like a video link, and he said something like, oh, this man's been in Alcuta for the last 20 years, hasn't he? English is spoken there, he should know English, and we don't need an interpreter. So I'll say goodbye now, Mr Interpreter, and just switches off the link. David explains that decisions in court can get made as though the accused person isn't even in the room. Decisions that are about them. He says this attitude could be found in Northern Territory courts as far back as the 1950s. Justice Crewalt made a statement to the effect that they didn't understand what was going on, but it wouldn't matter whether they were there or not. That's not justice. And maybe it's sadly not that surprising that this discriminatory treatment of Aboriginal people in the courts has been going on for a long time. But I still wanted to know more. And the more that I researched, a lot of Central Australian roads just kept leading me back to this one man. 
Yami Lester. Through the 70s and 80s, Yami was pioneering a lot of language work at the Institute for Aboriginal Development, or IAD, in Alice Springs. This is an archival recording of him interpreting for a council meeting at Jay Creek. Yes. He's talking about a failure to deliver housing. He promised us for 10 houses. Are they built? They answered. No. They forgot about it. In the 70s, Yami was one of the few interpreters at a time when there was no Aboriginal interpreter service or Aboriginal legal aid. And that's even though there were around 17 different Aboriginal languages around Alice Springs. In court, Yami saw things like people not understanding actually why they were in trouble. He saw people agree to something they didn't do just to try to get out of there. He wrote, and I'm quoting here, I've seen old men shaking with fear. When I ask them, what's the matter? They say, I don't know what's going on. In short, people didn't understand court and court didn't understand them. Yami's thinking there needed to be an Aboriginal interpreter service. To understand how Yami first got interested in interpreting, we need to go back to the 50s, to his homeland Wallatinna in the far, far north of South Australia, on Yunkajara country. We're here at Wallatinna on Dad's country. My name's Karina Lester. I'm Yami Lester's youngest daughter. I speak Yangudjara language and Bidjandjara because my grandmother was a Bidjandjara woman and English as my second or third language. In 1953, the British were doing nuclear testing at a place called Emu Junction and the fallout rolled over Wallatina. Yami was just a kid. You know, the black mist rolling and the ground shaking, you know, you kind of think, wow. Yami lost sight in one eye from the fallout. In 1957, he got sent to Adelaide to have his other eye removed. Yami couldn't understand the doctors. In his autobiography, he remembers a man came and took him to a place called Colebrook. It was basically a place for Aboriginal kids to assimilate. And Yami met his new roommate, a young fellow called Georgie, who spoke Yankadara. Finally, Yami could ask what was happening. Georgie explained that Yami wasn't going home, that he wouldn't be able to see again. Eight years later, when Yami finally got to see his family, he couldn't speak to them. It took him four days for his language to come back. And afterwards, he quotes, I'm never going to let the language go away. Back in Adelaide, Yami started using his language. He started interpreting for the courts or the hospital when Yankundara people needed help. He'd listened to activist Charles Perkins on the radio, and it got him thinking about Aboriginal rights. In 1970... Yami was invited up to Alice Springs for an interpreting job at the Institute for Aboriginal Development. Yami says, what was in my mind was helping people. I knew what it's like when you can't communicate. They said, yes, we told him that one. He asked, who? They said... There was a real sense of, yeah, we can change things. Russell Goldflam worked with Yami Lester. I mean, he was the pioneer of this. I was, uh, he was my boss and I was acting as his agent in this to a very large extent. He was the one who inspired me and taught me. Yami seemed like he had a big influence on Russell. He's a white fella and he joined Yami's team in 1981, working on a new interpreter training program. It was the first of its kind in the Northern Territory. 
And back then he saw in the courts what I saw decades later. It was obvious that there were people going to court and being found guilty of things and being sentenced who had no idea what was going on. It was also obvious that there was an opportunity to, to change that. Russell says he got involved right as the wave of land rights and self-determination was cresting in Alice Springs. When I came here, I knew that I was in the vanguard of a group of progressive, idealistic people who were going to fix racism within a few years. I knew. I mean, I was 25, so forgive me. It turned out that things were much worse than we could possibly understand. The IAD got some funds in 1983 to set up an interpreter service. Enough to buy a sedan and pay a coordinator, Russell says. That coordinator was Veronica Dobson, a senior Eastern Orinda woman. I've never ever expected to be working on language. Growing up at a Catholic mission in Santa Teresa, she hadn't been allowed to speak her language. We used to play marbles and stake a, a girl on the end of the building and tell them to whistle when they saw a nun coming <laughs> so we could stop, you know, talking Arundel and talk this funny English. In the early 80s, Veronica was working as a cleaner at the courthouse and the IAD. A chance encounter with a linguist set her on another path. I had a mop and bucket in my hand <laughs> and he asked me what language I spoke. I said Eastern Arundel and... We just got together and away it went. But for the service, money was a real issue. It wasn't funded to pay its interpreters, and that wasn't great for keeping them around. Between 1979 and 1999, there were 12 separate reports recommending the Northern Territory government provide an interpreter service, but the government just didn't want to hear it. Russell still remembers how the chief minister responded. He said, we've got schools... People can go to school. They're supposed to go to school. They have to go to school. Giving an interpreter to people who've been given the opportunity to go to school is like giving a wheelchair to a person who says he can't walk. And that's what the Chief Minister of the Northern Territory said in Parliament on this issue. Well, we normally say, you know, <laughs> every time we do something, we get a kick in the guts. Again, Veronica Dobson. My kids say to me, why do you keep doing it? <laughs> the love of the language. And then in 2000, the Chief Minister agreed to fund a service. He signed an agreement which saw millions of dollars being committed. Because he changed his mind, not at all. In February that year, a 15-year-old boy from Groot Island had hung himself in his cell. It came out that he apparently didn't understand why he was there. So we got our interpreter service funding but for all the wrong reasons. Over a dead body, literally. The government's interpreter service took over from IAD and was still going back when I was in court in 2015. Since then, I've worked in legal education in the Central Desert. I've seen people at Bush Court ask their family, what is this piece of paper, after being given new court dates on a paper slip. I've worked with people who don't understand why police gave them a restraining order. And the other day a colleague told me about a police officer who literally didn't know how to access the interpreter service. So maybe this is how it is? But does it have to be? 
Yami Lester passed in 2017. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull said after his death that Yami was one of the most significant Aboriginal leaders our country has known. I'm, I'm proud to be his youngest daughter and be able to keep some of his legacy alive and, and ongoing. Karina Lester, Yami's daughter, became an interpreter too. There's such a huge gap of interpreters. I don't know where we're not getting it right because this is stuff that Dad had done in the 70s and 80s. And I had a meeting talking to the state government about what are you doing about interpreters and translators and I'm talking it up the same way as Dad was. <laughs> Our generation, I think my generation, is about you know, really making sure that it's a human right to have an interpreter. And so important because language is so much bigger than just a way of communication. It's about culture and about land and about your ancestral stories. That story was produced by MJ Bakewell for the CBAA's National Features and Documentary Series with supervising production from Belinda Lopez and training from the CMTO. MJ's story was the recipient of the 2020 CBAA Community Radio Award in the National Features and Documentary Series category. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. At All The Best, you can learn how to make audio documentaries, essays, and fiction. Do you have a story to tell? We're currently taking pitches for our next season of episodes, and we're holding an online pitch workshop this Wednesday, February 17th. No previous radio experience necessary to take part. You can find out more at facebook.com forward slash all the best radio. In last November's episode, we played a story about a Vietnamese language program at Footscray Primary School that was being discontinued. We heard from some Footscray community members who wanted it to stay. The second story we're playing today comes from producer Bernadette Nguyen, who didn't learn Vietnamese when she was young and wishes she did. The one thing I'm most ashamed of is the fact that I can't speak Vietnamese fluently. Growing up, I was made fun of for speaking Vietnamese. To the untrained ear, it sounds nasally, aggressive and over-exaggerated. And growing up in Australia, that's what I began to see it as. A language I could hate. The older I became, the more I felt that I was missing a connection to my heritage, my parents' home, and the home of people who look just like me. No matter how hard I try to connect to my family now, language is a huge barrier for me. I feel like it's going to be a very personal conversation that we haven't really had before, so... Yeah, just... <laughs> and it's good at time to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. My mother moved to Australia being able to speak three different languages. I had the opportunity to go to a French school since I was a kid. I grew up 
in between French culture and Vietnamese culture. So at school, we spoke French and we spoke Vietnamese at home. I learned English as a second language at school. So together, I speak Vietnamese, French and English. I always thought my mum was brave for moving to a country where she barely knew the culture and only had fragments of the language down. We didn't go out much because we, when we first came, we get the habit to live in a cluster with Vietnamese people, with Vietnamese culture, so we feel much easier. My mum tells me a story about one of her early experiences in Australia. She was trying to catch a bus to a nearby town called Liverpool. I couldn't understand a word the bus driver talked to me because Liverpool then had a very, very, very strong accent. And they said nine and right. I asked him the way and he said, okay, go and turn right. I don't know what right is. And then it's very, very um, country accent. I came to Australia March 2015. My friend Jaden is from South Korea. He moved to Australia when he was 23. I still remember when I stepped out of the plane, sky was so clear because in Korea, we have a kind of the air pollution problem. When I came here, oh my God, it was so like blue and clear. Jaden's story is different to mine, but I wondered if he too felt a struggle in creating connections because of a language barrier. Back home, Jaden learned English at school. I was quite confident. I was like, oh, I have a good score. And like, I love watching like English drama or like an English song. So I should be fine. When I got here, there was different problem. Even though I was quite familiar with um, Western culture, when you actually come to overseas country, like it's really different and you will never know until you actually face that situation. He tells me about one of his early experiences in Australia. When I work in a Thai restaurant, I was a waiter. So I asked her, um, do you want rice? Because in Korea, R and L sound is exactly the same. We just say in L. So I didn't know there was a difference between rice and rice because for us, it's a sound exactly the same. And when I asked her, oh, do you want rice? She straight looked into my eyes. She was like, rice, no rice. At the time, I was so embarrassed and I hate myself. When I first hear, I kind of felt I left alone because even though I'm a nice person and have a good stories, always language was a problem. I have to try harder and try to go to talk to them more and try to put more effort to know them more. I felt like my weakness is the language, so I have to be more friendly and nice to them and go talk to them first, and then they will open their mind to know me more better and try to communicate more better. I feel the same way with my parents. We both have fragmented versions of the same languages. This means we have to try a lot harder to talk, which often means it's easier not to talk. Okay, how does it make you feel knowing that I don't speak Vietnamese very well? A bit upset. I try to teach you Vietnamese. The young people here, even Vietnamese, poor Vietnamese people, when we grow up, you learn the, the Western way. And 
quite a different generation, but what I wanted was just want you to remember your culture and your background. Even you speak English, you, you whatever, but still you, you remember you are Vietnamese, but not um, Western. Do you feel the same way now, like having lived here for more than 30 years? Do you go back to Vietnam and still feel Vietnamese or do you feel like there's something missing? Like, is there something there? Mm, not really. It's only when I go back to Vietnam, it's only missing a bit of nostalgia. And I don't feel lost in, in Australia, uh, in the Australian social um, society, because I know that I'm here, but I still keep my culture. I'm still me, still Vietnamese. But my generation is different. When I go back to Vietnam, I'm still Vietnamese. Whatever they want to see me, I don't care. You know that you're Vietnamese and that's it. Like, don't take attention to what people talk about you. You can look a bit different than them, but like you say, Vietnamese. And because you, you're, not, uh, you're not in the country, you can't speak fluently the, the language, but still you can express yourself. And you're Vietnamese. Did you want me to do that in language or in English? Oh, both, please. Yirudimurung, Yuandul Peter Joy, Radri Guga Mige, which is the day is good. My name is Peter or Peter Joy, and um, I'm a Radri Goana girl. Peter Joy teaches language. She can speak a South Australian Creole that she learnt from a previous partner and began learning her own language, Wiradjuri, as an adult. She too feels a disconnect between her and her heritage. I grew up knowing that I was Aboriginal and it was a bit of a mixed thing for me because of the colour of my skin. So at school I wasn't black enough for the black kids and I wasn't white enough for the white kids and I get questioned a lot on my identity. So for me it was an inverted way of reclaiming something of my culture, of my identity. From that I've actually been able to share it she tells me it was illegal to speak an Indigenous language or practice culture for a very long time. My great-great-grandmother, Jessie Evans, she actually was the last language speaker in my family and she didn't speak language for fear of getting into trouble because it was against the law, so she didn't teach it to her kids. I was born in 1978 and it only became legal to speak Aboriginal language in New South Wales in 1974. And people have that attitude, I'll just get over it. It happened a long time ago. It's not something that we can just get over. Because of that, we, we've lost so much. What inspired you to learn your language? My son came to me one day and he goes, mum, can you teach me some language? And I'm like, oh, darling, I don't know any to teach you. And then uh, about a week later, an opportunity came up. It was on Facebook saying, you know, people wanting to learn Wiradjuri language that this course was being offered. So when when I learnt my language, I learned it for my personal reasons, like for, for me to put that piece back, for, for my son and I to be able to reclaim that. There's always been a part of me that never felt Australian enough. And whenever I went to Vietnam, I never felt Vietnamese enough. In the process of talking to everyone, I started to realise that maybe I was looking into language because subconsciously, I wondered if it would help me reclaim my heritage. Peter says it does, but it can also come with a cost. When I first started teaching language, I had someone come in and question my identity. We have this horrible thing called lateral violence. You're not letting someone 
be the best that they can be rather than, you know, supporting that and watching them grow and being happy for them. We would rather pull them down and take them down a peg. It was awful. And I just thought to myself, it would just be so easier if I just pretended that I wasn't Aboriginal, pretended that I didn't care. For for a split second, I, I nearly did. But at the same time too, that's letting that person win. And I'm not going to have that. My culture is who I am. And I've been fortunate that I've learned a lot of it, but I've also put myself out there to learn it. It's often stereotyped that a part of Asian culture is showing affection by being too blunt. I grew up being told by my family and friends that my Vietnamese was terrible. Rather than encouraging me to get better, it often felt like they were being condescending, not creating a safe space for me to want to learn the language. So I began to resent Vietnamese because it hurt to be treated like I was dumb. Do you wish that we could speak better Vietnamese? I wish you could speak better Vietnamese because the 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 more you you the more you speak the language, the more the culture will stay with you. When you go back to Vietnam, uh, sometimes it's I feel that you don't mix in the family in Vietnam. When I was younger, there were times where I desperately wished I was just a regular Australian kid. At least then my parents and I could see eye to eye on more things. Not only is there a generational gap, but a language and a cultural one. And that's made it tough for us to talk about more meaningful things. I do regret not trying harder to learn the language. But it does make me happy knowing that my mum still sees her heritage in me. No matter how weak my understanding of our ancestors' language is. It can be a part of the culture and it not be your first language. It doesn't matter how little of your language you know, the more you speak it, your ancestors will hear you. It's all about that connection to, to my ancestry and, and trying to hold on to it and preserve it for future generations. Language and culture always go together. You, 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 you can't separate them. That story was produced by Bernadette Nguyen for the CBAA's National Features and Documentary Series, with supervising production from Celeste McIntosh and training from the CMTO. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders, past, present and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri land. Our editorial manager is Mel Chun, and our production manager is Danny Stewart. Matilda Fay and Angela Moran are our social media producers. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Maddie McQueen. Thanks for listening.